Bibles this morning to the Gospel according to Matthew, and to Matthew chapter 25, as we finish off the Olivet Discourse today. Matthew chapter 25, we'll be reading verses 31 through 46, and let me ask you to stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. This is the Word of God. Let let us give our attention to it. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you a drink, And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Thus ends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to begin by asking you a question this morning, and the question is very simply this, what is the basis of your hope of salvation? Or to put it another way, in the hour of your death, what will be your comfort? John Newton, many of whom you will know as the author of Amazing Grace, perhaps the most famous folk hymn of all time, was grieved throughout his life by the remembrance of his sins. Many of you will know his story, how before the Lord brought him to saving faith, 
Newton had been a slave trader. He recounted that he would often have nightmares throughout life. And when he would have nightmares, they often involved slaves crying from the ships. 20,000 souls. That background really gives you a window into the words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He knew himself to be a wretch, but he knew the amazing grace of God that quieted his heart. He'd come to understand that amazing grace and how that grace had transformed him from the man that he once was outside of Christ to the man that he became united to Christ. One of my favorite things that Newton ever said was this. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I one day will be. But I am not what I was. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And so Newton would quietly spend his whole life preaching and writing letters and serving God's people in every way that he could, inspiring others among the, along the way like the abolitionist William Wilberforce. But in spite of his terrible dreams that plagued him, Newton would not die in the terrors of conscience because Newton had come to understand that it was only the amazing grace of his Savior that made him able to stand in the day of judgment. So that when he died in 1807... His final words were these, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. Newton's hope in life and death was that he belonged body and soul to his faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who had paid for all of his sins. He had come to understand what the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of our works done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit that He poured out on us richly through the grace of our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs of the hope of eternal life. Now, I begin with this account And with this firm reminder that we are saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone and not saved by works done by us in righteousness, but by that amazing grace of God and how that amazing grace of God transforms the servants of Christ to be ministers of grace. And I start there because this particular passage of Scripture has been misread and misinterpreted and misapplied in such a way that it would place our final hope of salvation, our judgment, purely on the ground of our works and particularly our works done for the poor. So that it doesn't matter what you may have believed in life, but what have you done for the least of these? And in this scheme of doctrine, Jesus becomes not the great Savior, but the great moral example by which you and I, in imitation of his life, might through our service to the poor and the indigent, gain an entrance into the kingdom of God. 
I contend that that would be, as we have studied in Galatians, to nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were by works of the law, then Christ died for no purpose. But Matthew, in this gospel, is leading us to the cross. He is leading us to Jesus and to his saving work as the ground and basis of our hope in that day. And what we find in this passage then is not the basis or ground of our hope in final judgment, which is the righteousness and the satisfaction of Christ alone, but rather we have here the effect of that grace in our lives as it transforms God's people so that during this time of delay it is manifest in the grace that we show toward the ministers of Christ and to his servants as we serve our brothers and sisters. And so as we look at this passage together then, we're going to consider it very simply under two points. First, the glorious judge, and secondly, the glorious judgment. The glorious judge and then the glorious judgment. It, it begins with this incredibly high Christology. Uh, here in this final discourse that Jesus uh, begins with, this glorious scene in verse 31, where we read this, When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Now, we have just uh, come out of the Christmas season, where many of our thoughts have been focused on Christ in his estate of humility. Uh, We have thought of Christ as he laid aside that glory which he shared with his Father from the foundation of the world, but prays that he might take it up again. Uh, We have thought of Christ taking on human flesh, being born in a stable, being laid in a manger in that most lowly of estates. We think of Christ uh, as he said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. We think of Christ sharing in our sufferings, tasting our sadness, taking our sin and shame and bearing it to the cross. In his first coming, the Son of Man did not come in glory, but in humility and in obscurity. In his first coming, the nations were not gathered before him, they were gathered against him. In his first coming, he did not come to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. But in this passage today, we do not consider the Son of Man in his humiliation, but rather in his exaltation. Here, Jesus describes what it will be like when he returns in glory. This same Jesus who came in humility and obscurity bearing the judgment of his people will come in that day as the judge, as the king. Uh, The way Paul says it in Acts 17 is that now God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed and he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That is what this scene describes. It describes the risen 
exalted, glorified Christ surrounded by the heavenly angels and sitting on a glorious throne. And there as he sits enthroned in his glory, that glory that he once shared with the Father before the foundation of the world, all the nations, all the ethnos are gathered before him and he will separate the peoples one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. I think we often think of shepherds tending only to sheep, but of course, shepherds had the care of a good many animals. And while sheep and goats would often graze together indiscriminately on the hillsides of Israel, they would sometimes need to be separated on particularly cold nights or in the season of shearing since their wools were not to be mixed together. And Jesus says that it's going to be like that on this final day of judgment as the flocks of humanity are brought before Christ and he will distinguish and separate out the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. All those who throughout their lives, were not distinguished or separated, will one day be distinguished and separated. And we can see from the placement of the peoples on the right hand and on the left who it is that is represented as sheep and goats. At that time, the right hand signified the place of blessing and the place of honor while the left hand signified a place of dishonor. And so clearly, on the one hand, the sheep who are on the right hand represent the people of Christ, those who trusted in Him for salvation, those who loved Him and served Him and followed Him as His disciples, and they will receive honor and blessing. While on the other hand, the goats represent those who did not know Christ, who did not love Him, or serve Him, or welcome Him, or follow Him, and so receive condemnation and dishonor. And that all becomes more clear as this glorious King pronounces His glorious judgment. Let's shift our focus then to a consideration of that glorious judgment as it's pronounced. Having separated these two groups the king turns to those on his right and he pronounces his judgment, which comes in the form of a welcome. He says, come. you imagine that? This glorious king welcomes his people. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, right from the outset, it should be clear to us that this kingdom is not earned by the sheep. It is not based on their works, since clearly it has been prepared for them from before the foundation of the world, before even they were born. God's electing grace was not based on him who wills, nor on him who runs, as Paul says, but on God who shows mercy. It is God's purpose and calling that will stand in that day. Indeed, what God has prepared for His Son, a kingdom, He gives to His people. And so those who inherit the kingdom of God's grace 
inherit it by grace and by grace alone. And yet that same electing grace of God is a grace that works in the hearts of His people. It is an efficacious grace. And you can see the effect of that grace in what the king says next. He says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. You see the way in which that grace of God makes God's people gracious so that their grace overflows in their acts of grace and their acts of mercy and kindness. And just think about how very basic these acts are. Right? They, they're very simple things. The provision of food and drink, the hospitable welcome to a stranger, the provision of clothing, the kindness of a visit to those who are sick and imprisoned. As, as one commentator puts it so well, they are not big miracles. They are little ministries. They are all the sorts of things that any one of us would be ready to do for Christ. And notice also the degree of selflessness seen in their surprise. Marvelously, they are not even aware of the many ways in which they have served Christ, so that they, they are asking, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When were you thirsty? When did we give you something to drink? When did we welcome you as a stranger or, or clothe you in your nakedness? When did we see you sick and in prison? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers... You did it to me. And I think, you see, that in that answer of Jesus, we have the key to understanding this entire story. The key is that Jesus identifies himself with the least of these, his brothers. And this sense of solidarity is so close that he says that these acts of kindness and mercy that were done to the least of these my brothers was done to me so that we can now properly understand why he uses the first person singular. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked. I was sick. I was in prison. But of course, the all-important question is, who is Jesus referring to when he speaks of the least of these, my brothers? Who are these brothers that Jesus identifies with so personally and so closely that it may be said that what is done to them is done to him? As I indicated earlier, there has been a way of reading this story in the history of the church recently in theological liberalism of the 20th century and in many present manifestations of the social gospel in the 21st century, who identify, take this out of its context, and identify the least of these, my brothers, with the poor and the indigent, the needy of humanity in general. 
They take as their starting point the false liberal notion of the common fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. And so the passage is interpreted to mean that on the last day, people will be judged not on the basis of who Christ is or what He has done or on the basis of what they have believed, but on how they have treated the poor. Irrespective of what else you might have done, what else you might have believed, as long as you have been kind and generous to the poor, you're good. Entire books have been written to this effect. One popular work was called Inasmuch. Uh, That title taken from the King James translation of this passage, Inasmuch as you have done it to one of the least of these my brothers. Organizations have latched onto that language. There is an inasmuch humanitarian foundation and an inasmuch homeless ministry. And I don't know how many times I have seen this passage taken out of context on Facebook to support whatever new humanitarian effort is being pushed. Let me just step back and be clear for a moment. The Scriptures tell us lots of things about the way we should treat the poor. About the kindness that is due to them. God clearly made provision for the poor and the weak throughout the Old Testament. We might think of Proverbs 19.17. Help given to the poor of Israel is given to the Lord. And the Lord will repay him for his deed. We might think of the many prophets who call God's people to consider the poor. Amos, Isaiah especially those poor who are poor out of no fault of their own. We might think of the way that Paul says, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. The Bible has a lot to say about the way that we treat the poor and the stranger, and I don't want to disparage or dismiss what the Bible commands about our duty to the poor. What I am saying is that that is not what this passage is about. And that is not who these brothers are. So what is it about, and who are these brothers? Well, to put it simply, when Jesus speaks of one of the least of these, my brothers, he does not have in view how people treat the poor in general, but how people treat his disciples, his people. It is his disciples that Jesus identifies so personally and so closely with that it may be said that what is done to them is done to him. Now let me just prove that from Scripture. Because we have to interpret the Scriptures by the Scriptures. And the best place to begin in looking at Matthew is to begin in Matthew itself and to think about the way that Matthew uses this language in his Gospel. And it's very clear that he's not speaking of humanity in general, but he's speaking of those who have followed him and have come to trust in him and his disciples in particular. And by that, I don't just mean the twelve. I mean all of those who love him and serve him and follow him in faith. You may have a little note in your Bible that brothers could be translated brothers and sisters. So consider, for example, Matthew chapter 12, uh, verses 46 and following. Following. That while Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. That is, Mary and his half-brothers 
wanted an audience with Jesus. And so they came, and they were standing outside the door, and Jesus replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus was not denying his biological relationships. He was saying something about the kind of spiritual family, this new relationship that is brought about through the gospel, these that he identifies with, such that he can say in chapter 10, whoever receives them receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Or consider the way that Matthew says it in Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus instructs them, you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, but you are all brothers. Now, there were brothers amongst the disciples. But Jesus is saying, you're all brothers. You've been made brothers. You are my brother. Or Matthew 28, when the angel meets the women at the tomb, and he says, go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. And then just shortly after that, Jesus meets the women, and he says to them, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. What Jesus is speaking about here is the attitude of people towards his disciples, towards Christians, towards those whom he is sending out with the message of the gospel. And that is true not just of mountain to town persecuting Christians. Until that day, the Lord met him on the road and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul responded, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, who was Saul persecuting? Acts tells us Saul was breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord and all those belonging to the way, both men and women. And yet Jesus so identifies with these, his servants, that he says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? I trust the point is made that it is the church, it's the disciples of Christ, the men and women of the way who bear the message of the gospel, that these are the people whom he identifies with such that to persecute them is to persecute him, to receive the prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And now hear it. Now whoever gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is my disciple. Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. You see, the nations are judged because of the way they receive or do not receive the messengers of Christ and the message that they bring. The sheep are those who received that message of Christ who received the messengers and who responded in the grace of Christ and responded with grace towards his messengers. The goats, on the other hand, are those who did not receive the messengers but ignored them. 
and in ignoring left. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. I was naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Think of the way the church visits Paul in prison. Think of the way they send and meet his needs and the way that Paul gives thanks for them. Then they will also answer. They're also surprised. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger, naked, sick, in prison? Can you imagine Saul before he was Paul? He thought he was serving the Lord. Lord, when? And he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these prepared for Christ. They inherit the kingdom. And the question that will be before the nations then is how have you received Christ? How have you received his messengers, his brothers, and the message that they bring? And that is certainly a question that the unbelieving world will one day have to reckon with as they stand before that glorious throne of Christ. But it's also a good question to ask ourselves. Do we love Christ and his body, his brothers and sisters? Do you think about one another that way, not just as your brothers and sisters, but as Christ's brothers and sisters whom he loves, such that to meet the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ is to serve Christ himself. We have a beautiful example of that from the church that the author of Hebrews is writing to. He says to them that you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now that was, of course, particularly true in the first century as Christians were frequently being persecuted and, and martyred for their faith. You know that D.A. Carson recounts that uh, there have not only been more Christian converts in the last 150 years than there were in the whole previous 1,800 years combined, but there have been more Christian martyrs in the last 150 years than in the previous 1,800 years combined. How do we think about our missionaries? How do we think about those who are going out with the Word? It's one of the reasons I'm so grateful that Bill does that missions report. Every night it keeps it on our minds. It reminds us that the church and the servants of Christ are bigger than what we see right here in Gainesville. In our small experience of the church. And though that may not be the, the sort of persecution we are facing we don't often have opportunities to visit our brothers in prison 
because of their testimony to the gospel. But though that may not be our experience, it may not be far down the road. Do we love the church? Do we love our brothers and sisters in Christ? Have we been so transformed by the grace of Christ that we are becoming ever more gracious to the least of these, our brothers and sisters? Now, I admit that's a hard question. And it's a question that every single one of us would answer, I don't love the church as much as I ought. We can probably all say with Newton, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not even what I want to be. I know I'm not what I one day will be. But I'm not what I am, what I was. I'm not that guy anymore. I love Christ. I love the church. If you have truly welcomed Christ as He has been brought to you in the Gospel, then you may confess, I am a great sinner, but He is a great Savior. And how great a Savior is He? He gave you the bread from heaven when you were hungry. He gave you the living water when you were thirsty. He welcomed you into His kingdom when you were a stranger. He covered your nakedness with His robes of righteousness. He tended to the sickness of your soul. He has set you free from the prison of your sin. So that now your heart is changed. So that you want to serve and minister to Him. Truly, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, You sent Your disciples and Your people out knowing full well that if they hated the Master, they would also hate His servants. If they treated the Master poorly and even put Him to death, they would do the same for the servants. And Lord, You you helped Your people to understand what was coming to them but you also encouraged them by the reality that you had your sheep out amongst the goats and that they would receive your messengers and they would receive the message that they brought and they would receive Christ Himself and all of His benefits for their salvation. And so they would receive with grace those whom you sent. Lord, we pray that you would help us that You would transform our hearts so much by the Gospel that we would even unselfconsciously minister to the needs of one another. Not as a way that we might gain favor or standing with You, that we might gain Your blessing, but because we have Your blessing and because we simply want to mirror and imitate our Lord. And so, Lord, help us in this endeavor. Grow us in every grace. But Lord, help us never to think that our salvation and the ground of our hope in that day is based upon our works, but it is based upon Your works on our behalf. You are a great Savior. And we say these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I love two sacrament Sundays.
where we get both the waters of judgment that are make for our cleansing, and we also get this picture of judgment that makes for our cleansing. Baptism and the Lord's Supper point us to the same reality, don't they? Uh, They picture death, even as uh, the waters picture a flood of judgment. Uh, So the bread and the wine signify the body of Christ. The wine comes to us poured out, reminding us that Christ's blood had to be shed for the remission of our sins. And the bread comes to us broken, reminding us that His, His body was taken to pieces in order that we might have life through Him. And so as we come to this meal today, He gives us these elements and He calls us to receive them in remembrance of the work that He's done. But even as we look back and even as we remember the work that He's done, we remember that He gives these to us as the risen and exalted Son of Man. That He stands raised from the dead having conquered death. And He now gives us these elements not only to remind us of what He's done, but to express that communion and that fellowship that we have with Him and with one another as brothers and sisters in Him. And also to make us look forward in hope to that day when we will eat and drink anew at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so this meal is before us today, but this meal... Uh, Though it is for sinners, it is for sinners who are repenting of their sins and trusting in Christ. It is a meal for Christians. It is a meal for His brothers. And so I would ask you today, are you one of the brothers or sisters of Christ? Have you been made one of His family members by being baptized into His family by having the name of the triune God put upon your head? Do you belong to Christ? If you do, then you are welcome to come and to join us in this meal and to find assurance uh, of salvation. But if those things are not true of you, let me just ask you to quietly let these elements pass you by. But I would also urge you, do not let Christ pass you by. Behold, now is the day of salvation. There is a day coming of judgment when He will sit on His glorious throne and He will separate the nations like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And if you are not in Christ on that day, it will be a fearful day and the judgments that are here pictured will fall upon you. And so I would plead with you as a minister of Christ, be reconciled to God through His Son. And if you want to know more of what that means, I would love for you to come and to speak to me about what it means to be a brother and a disciple of Christ. But if you are, then brothers and sisters, know that the grace of God is being extended to you. Know that you are comforted, that you are a great sinner but He is a far greater Savior. Amen. Amen. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements now and set them apart for this holy use. Lord, as we come to Your table, we know that 
in and of ourselves. We, we don't have a right to sit here, and yet you have made us a part of your family. You have adopted us. You have placed your name upon us. You've given us a right and title to eternal life. You, you uh, give us all the benefits of belonging to Christ. Not only that adoption, but that justifying grace, that work of sanctification that you are continuing to work in us, and, and all of the other benefits of peace of conscience and joy in the Holy Spirit, increasing grace until the end. Lord, we, we ask that even now as we receive these elements with faith, that Christ himself and all of those benefits would be assured to us, sealed to us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.